When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, social change agent Sylvia Zur of the Inspiral Network of Social Enterprises. My answer to it is to build organizations that are fundamentally, from the very beginning, from when it is just a twinkle in your eye, human-centric and social impact-driven. Sylvia will share with us some strategies for scaling that don't necessarily involve getting bigger at all. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. After the uh, recent election results were in, I gathered a group of people. I knew a uh, some Democratic funders who were disillusioned about what had happened, and I know a lot of uh, real activists, you know, on the ground people who are actually making social change. And I thought it might be a good opportunity to connect them with the kinds of people who were. Uh, well, perhaps a little disappointed with the uh, workings of establishment politics and, and party operatives and thought maybe giving money directly to activists and media makers and new economy developers and agriculture activists, that maybe they would see the enactment of a progressive culture instead of focusing so much, at least initially, on electoral politics or some kind of a, a Trump revenge. And um, we did a meeting, and we um, eventually thought maybe uh, we could put together some kind of a kit for people, you know, that we would give it out at the, uh, at the Women's March, and it could have, uh, you know, different cards in it, basically a, uh, a local action toolkit for people, not even based in politics so much. I mean, maybe there'd be one for how to win back your state house, but most of them would be, you know, how to create a local currency, how to make a favor bank, really stuff that communities actually need so that people would go back home from the march and be able to do stuff. But then, uh, you know, a few other guides came out that actually satisfy that purpose, you know, the indivisible guy. There's a ton of them out now. Not a ton, but but half a dozen really good ones. But we did another meeting, or we were going to do another meeting. I uh, got an email from the uh, the host who had said that oh, now he could get a uh, really a major uh, Democratic Party person to come to find out what the party really needs and, and get advice. 
And I emailed the activists and they were all like, screw that. I mean, none of them wanted to come. They all, they all said things to the effect of, well, that's, that's the person who cost us the election. Or, or uh, uh, you know, those are the people we, we don't trust anymore. They're going to steal our ideas and use them for, you know, really dumb things. So no one, you know, none of them wanted to come. I ended up going. We had a, a small dinner last night. And I'm, other than just feeling so strange to be with the group of people who actually make these kinds of political decisions, I think the thing that struck me the most was their sort of understanding of interactive media and how this works and how all these memes are affecting things and how to fight Trump and all. And their main strategy, as I understood it, was to do opposition research on Trump, uh, you know, find out what his negatives are, find out what things, you know, he's doing that uh, people are most likely to be upset about, and then, you know, make smart media, make, you know, YouTube videos and edit things together and get memes out there. In other words, use social media to somehow invalidate all the memes that the positive memes maybe that that are spreading there about him or another idea was you know take each one of his lies and you know say what the truth is to each one create these accounts or spread on social media you know expose all these lies and uh i don't know that it just seemed so you know 1990s to me on a certain level <laughs> or early knots at least you know that early use of social media and social media, which is a zone that, that, you know, that Trump and his followers really, uh, they own right now. They're, they're better at it. They're using it in ways that are more consistent with its biases, which are not really toward truth, but toward sensationalism and toward, you know, animus. But the other idea, just the whole idea of, of exposing lies, I think misunderstands what those lies are are doing and what they're for. You know, Trump's lies are not simply to disinform the public about things. It's really more to demonstrate the ability to lie with impunity. You know, the, it, the, the function of the lying is different. I mean, I was watching the uh, press secretary out there saying stuff that he just knew wasn't true. Oh, this is the biggest inauguration of all time. And it reminded me of the people I studied in cults. I did a, a, a cult study back in the late 90s when I was trying to look at the similarities between cults and brands, you know, and whether or not, you know, things like Apple and Harley Davidson, are those, are those cults and do they use any of the same rules in establishing a consumer cult as a cult cult, which is an interesting topic all by itself we should talk about. But one of the techniques that cult leaders use is they make their subordinates do really crazy things. You know, if if a cult member does a really crazy thing or a mean thing or gets rid of a family member or uh, gives an exorbitant sum of money, whatever, does it does a, a bizarre thing or has sex with someone that they're, you know, don't want to or you know, the kinds of things that cults make their followers do. When you do those things, it forces you to justify them by believing that the cult leader is real. In other words, why would I have done that ridiculous, terrible, crazy thing unless this guy really is, you know, God, you know, is is, is the the holy one. It justifies one's loyalty to themselves, but it also it makes it impossible to leave. You've done this crazy thing maybe in front of people, in front of your family. If the guy's not it, that's going to be really hard. What can you do after that? You know, so when I'm looking at this press secretary saying these crazy things, from the minute he threw his hat in there and went into lie crazy stuff, 
Trump has earned his loyalty. This guy now needs Trump to stay in office. I mean, if Trump got kicked out or something in six months, what's this guy going to do? He's just committed himself to crazy. So now he has to go whole hog into that. This is a great way to engender the loyalty, the blind loyalty of the people that are working with you is just to get them to do stuff that they wouldn't be able to answer for once you weren't on the scene once you were no longer in power. The the idea of expending more effort to make his lies look more ridiculous actually serves the opposite purpose. The, the more that you push against those lies, the more loyal his people have to be to him. You know, the more the more that they believe that, oh, my gosh, everybody really is trying to keep the truth from coming out. So it doesn't it doesn't help them either. All it does is really strengthen the people that are around him. You know, the, the way forward for progressives is not to try to make media that counters the reality that he's describing, but is to make a reality that counters the reality that he's describing. You know, the way forward is for progressives to do progressive things. We have to put in some in in some cases we have to put kind of political machination you know opposition polling and all this electoral political stuff we have to put electoral politics aside in order for progressives just to do progressive things you know whether it's setting up a favor bank or uh, uh, figuring out a, a literacy campaign, or cleaning up your water, you know, actually doing things, not asking for politicians to do them for us. You know, all of this activity, if progressives are doing progressive things, it anchors progressive behavior, the progressive mindset in people. And everybody living in those towns and cities and villages will see the actual changes being made through progressive action, not by progressive argument, but by progressive action. And that can trickle up to party politics and create places for homegrown candidates to actually take charge of the party and also slowly embed progressive values that are consonant with those, hopefully, that the candidates in that party are espousing. Actually doing things in the real world is a better way to assert our truth, not by proclaiming it, but by enacting it. This is Team Human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Keo Stark, and I'm on Team Human. I'm L.A. Kaufman, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human, our guest, Sylvia Zur of the Inspiral Network of Social Enterprises. I hope you don't mind me using you this way to start, but we're having a rough time in the States. I don't know if you've heard, we had this big presidential election, and there's this guy a lot of us don't like, and he might be really bad, and people are doing bomb threats to a lot of the Jewish community centers today, which is just another upsetting thing. So I was wondering if if you could start us off. I mean, I'm, I'm, we'll explain, I want to explain some of Inspiral to, uh, to our audience as we go, but I'm wondering if we could start us off with sort of what what is the most inspiring thing that's happening at at Inspiro right now that you'd want to share with us? Oh wow, what a, what a way to begin! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm definitely holding a lot of my um, American colleagues in my in my heart right now. Um, <laughs> that Inspiral, um, I would talk to you about the people. You know, I would talk to you about the people who, regardless of the context, regardless of the stuff that we're going on, because we have different shades of the same problems in New Zealand, but also around the world, people are just getting along and, you know, getting stuff done. We're constantly trying to improve and create different ways of working, regardless of the amount of times that it might not work or it does work. So, yeah, I'd probably just tell you stories of, of the awesome people in the network. Is it? Easier, do you think, for people to engage with the world the way that you guys are 
because you're in New Zealand, I mean, we have this, uh, maybe in America, or certainly in the New York metropolitan area, we end up with a utopian vision of New Zealand that you're somehow, uh, uh, because you're a little bit secluded or, or isolated, that you, you kind of have, you're more like a tide pool when we're more like a current, that you have the ability to kind of t- to remain still for a moment and and gather a little bit of, of, of energy yourselves before it's just swept away by the marketplace. Mm, yeah, a little bit of stillness. I mean, you know, apart from the um, the hobbits and the elves that run around, you know, we're not, we're not quite a <laughs> utopia. <laughs> I, I think if I think about New Zealand's position in the world, there's a couple of interesting things, I guess, to explore is one, um, you know, population, we're tiny. You know, we're 4.5 million. And a couple of months ago, I was in Brazil and someone in Rio was talking about the number of people in, in Rio or in the state of, of Rio. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's something like 30 million or perhaps it's 34 million. And there was this moment when I was just like, wow, my whole entire population is your margin of error. So something <laughs> about that, like we can shift our population, I guess, in a way that when you look at the states, it's like a big sort of, I was going to say Titanic, but we all know how that ends. So that's not a good example, but it's kind of, I guess, like a whale or a, or a minnow. So there's this agileness that New Zealand has. And the second thing I'd probably add is there's an interesting thing about being at the bottom of the world, because you look at everything with a different perspective, right? Literally from bottom up rather than perhaps from top down. And I wonder if that brings a different way of seeing the world that some New Zealanders bring, that especially when I look at people up in the Northern Hemisphere, they often kind of forget us down here, but we can't because we are down here. And so there's much more sort of global way of seeing and approaching the world that I think many New Zealanders have that perhaps missing in in other places that take, you know, the Northern top down way of looking for granted. That's probably the couple of things that come to my mind. Right. And there's also, I mean, I found from when I was there, there seemed to be more of a uh, uh, a respect or, or reverence for the Aboriginal culture that predated, you know, the, the Western colonization that, you know, even though Queen Victoria was really mean and I, I saw the contracts, you know, they wrote contracts in Maori for the for the natives there that were completely different than the ones they wrote in English for themselves, which isn't, it's a little, a little double dealing, but that the, the current, po- I mean, they didn't wipe them out in quite the genocide that we had in America. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of a respect for that, that culture feels present mm-hmm. in a way that indigenous culture doesn't really feel present in the Americas. Yeah, yeah totally. And, but I, but I think There's another interesting thing about New Zealand is that our colonization process is far more fresher and younger than younger than the rest of the world. You know, it's it's only been really 200 years that white people have been on this Mm -hmm. land. So there's also a version where we've had less time to stuff it all up. But also, I guess one of my biggest hopes is that we've had more time to see how the rest of the world has done it and hopefully not follow those paths. But at the same time, it's one of my frustrations around New Zealand where we're not actually clean and green. We've just had less time to damage the environment. So how do we actually learn what's going on, not just follow the paths and actually go a different way? And I think in terms of sort of the Maori culture, I think it's very embedded, but at the same time, it's also not, you know, I, I, you know, if I'm, if I'm honest, I struggle to, to find what my, Pākehā, which is sort of the the white person, the foreigner's identity in New Zealanders in the context of, of the Māori culture and how we find that relationship. And I think we're still very new, even though we have the treaty to stand upon, there's still a learning and a kind of a relationship that we need to come to. There's this wonderful um, Māori word which I'd love to share with you, which is um, whanongatanga, and that's really about creating the relationship or the way that I've interpreted it that we've definitely applied in Inspiral is we can't work together until we know each other. So what is the knowing that needs to happen that enables the work to happen? And I think that's something that we've brought very strongly into Inspiral and that we meet every six months for retreats. We ask who the human is that you're working with in front of you before you jump into the details. And for me, it's something I've really learned from the Maori culture of meeting, having a hui, having a gathering, 
getting to know each other, understanding your history and your biography before you jump into the practice, into the work, kind of taking, and I like what you said around that sort of that pause and that step back before jumping into the tide. It's tricky though. You know, I, I remember back when I was in acting school, they, they used to say, you know, the friendships come from the work. You don't get the work out of the friendships, you know, because they didn't want actors to get together and just have these kind of touchy feely, you know, get to know each other things. Just like, let's just get right to the book, get to the script. Um, but I guess that's in a case where you know exactly what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And there's a director and there's a, a date, you know, it's not a matter of gathering people together to say, well, how can we remake currency in a way that serves more people? Or how can we develop a, a business strategy uh, for a, uh, uh, a consensus building tool, say, that doesn't undermine the purpose of the actual of the application that we're building? Exactly. I mean, we don't even know the work that we need to do tomorrow, you know, and if I don't know the person that I'm working with, and so if we're all just trying to work on a strategy that was created yesterday on Saturday, that's actually going to look very different. So what is the relationships of the people that I need to create to do the work first so that on Saturday when we need to push go or we need to figure out a new way of working, the relationship is there so that the work can be done? Right, which then sounds like, I mean – and it's a very it's a very uh, team human approach, I guess, to human interaction is what we're doing is really developing a set of protocols through which we interact and then new forms emerge rather than creating a, a guidebook or a set of instructions and a hierarchical chart to orchestrate, the, you know, this human activity. Oh, 100 percent. And I think what what I've been exploring is. You know, recipes for me are a description of a past success. They're not the definition of the, how the future wants to be created. So if we rely on the recipes, whether that is how organizations are built or how we work with money or even the legal systems of society, we get stuck in trying to do the same thing over and over again, which I believe it was Albert Einstein said, you know, insanity is the definition of trying to do the same thing twice and expecting a different outcome. You know, we're all just insane if we keep on trying to do the same recipes. And what we've tried to do with Inspiral and what I guess I try to do in my sort of organizational work is go, actually, what are the principles or the people or the ingredients in front of me? How do we need to use those and how do we combine them and create them in a new way that then serves the future or what's being asked of us? Right, which is in a way the opposite of the focus of certainly the digital economy now, which is all using data, which is basically past results to uh, increase predictability and, and you know, and get uh, uh, pre-configured outcomes yeah. rather than, you know, alchemy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, I like that way of thinking of organizational building as a, a, a modern day form of alchemy. Imagine that. <gasps> At best, yeah. I mean, it'd be nice. I mean, in in, in some ways, it, it is what's going on there. So when you look at a project, I mean, I think you know one of the most famous coming out of Inspiral right now is is Lumio, and you know, and we think of it, I guess, because he's on all the videos as Ben Knight's thing, but um, it's actually a, a collaborative effort at collaboration engineering. Really, <laughs> you know, it's a it's a very meta project on a certain level, but it's super simple. It took sort of an inspiration from the General Assembly consensus building protocols of the Occupy movement and then translated them to a, an online platform that's being used, you know, by different groups globally to uh, uh, solve problems and achieve consensus. Mm. I mean, I, I, I feel like a, um, a proud aunt when it comes to Lumio. <laughs> it's just been mm. this incredible... It's, it's both. It's an organization, it's a community, and it's software, and it's people all coming together simultaneously. And I like to think of Lumio um, as kind of the love child of Occupy and Inspiral. And what happens when you bring this deep commitment to consensus decision making, combined with, I guess, Inspiral's question around new forms of organizations and different business models, together it feels like they've created Lumio, which now in its own right is its own identity with its own group of people. And you're right, it's it's beyond just Ben or Rich or the couple of um, faces that you might see representing it. Lumio is now the people in, you know, in, in Turkey or in Greece or in Spain that are using it. And the beauty of Lumio is the brand is now beyond New Zealand. 
you know, it's not just what we've created here. It's just as much in Spain as it is in New Zealand. And I think, I think that's one of, I guess my hope for Inspiral's impact is, yes, we've prototyped new ways of working down here in New Zealand. But like I said, for us to have global impact, that's only going to affect 4 million people. So the way that we can really impact the world is through this openness and through sharing what we're doing in its complete imperfection and saying, hey, look, this is how we're trying to work. How about you try working that way? And my hope is that in that way, it kind of becomes a global virus or a, you know, a sort of a, an alchemic, if that's even a word, gold that we can sprinkle around the world of a new way of working and through that be inspiration? I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It's just that in uh, uh, many, for many listeners that, that will sound, and it's not, but it'll sound like, oh, we can scale this thing. No. And it's not about scaling. It's not scaling like Google, oh, we can have servers everywhere. It's more about sort of modeling something that is then, you know, replicated and adapted and recreated in different instances with, with or without credit. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a more lateral a more lateral uh, dissemination than it is some kind of a, a scaling operation. Oh, exactly. I'm really interested in this word scale and potent- potentially the negative effect that it's had on a lot of our entrepreneurs, you know, where scale becomes the metric of success. And I think with an Inspiral, scale feels like the crux of the core word that we're exploring right now. You know, we've explored how does Inspiral do money? We've explored how does Inspiral do leadership? How does Inspiral do culture? And all of those key words, you know, we could talk about half an hour of how we've redefined it. But to be honest, scale, I think, is going to be our word of 2017 because people are knocking at our door going, oh, my God, we want Inspiral in New York. We want Inspiral in Melbourne. We want Inspiral in London. And my biggest fear and hope is that, people then try and replicate it there as the thing that we've created in New Zealand. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You know, it just, it'll fail if you just try and pick up the recipe and run it in New York. Right. It's like looking at someone else's marriage or someone else's family and saying, oh, I want a marriage like that. You know, it's like, no, that's their marriage. You you know, we could tell you what we did was, you know, we were honest with each other. We really love each other. We get through problems. But this is our marriage. You can't have this one. And I mean, if someone was sitting here right now listening and are like, oh, yes, but... I do want what you've got, you know, of course, we've got core questions that I'd ask them, you know, I'd say, well, perhaps some of the first things you could look in your own organization is what do you centralize and what do you decentralize, you know, look to decentralize money, information and power, for example, who knows what and when, how are decisions made, where does the money sit in the organization, those are real practical things that any organization anywhere in the world can do. And once they've done that, then I'd say, Aha, uh-huh. okay, well, how about you use CoBudget or how about you use Lumio or look, this is how we publish our handbook or this is how we do that to give them real practical examples. And then I'd ask right. them, what do you actually want to centralize? And there I might say things like your values or your culture or your community or your rhythm or your when do you come together and meet and sit in a circle and what does that look like? And then once they, they would have said, oh, yeah, this is what we want to do, then I would say, okay, sweet, here are some tools. How about you try having a retreat every six months? How about you try checking in at the beginning of your meeting? So you can see it's about first, I guess, asking a question, questioning the way that we're currently doing it, figuring out the answer that applies to the organization, and only then using the recipes or the tools that Inspiral's created to apply it to that unique context. Right. And and for those who are unfamiliar with with Inspiral, I mean, I, I suppose the easiest way to describe it is to say that that Inspiral is an approach to open, appropriately scaled, sustainable, people driven enterprise. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that'll do for today. <laughs> and there's and there are a series of uh, experiments yeah. You know, in various stages that Inspiral is doing with experiments that, you know, to a, a incubator or a VC in New York, it would look like startups, but they're not really startups in that sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing about to try and understand Inspiral is to understand what it's not. You know, it's not an mm-hmm. incubator. 
it's 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 not an accelerator you know we we definitely don't do all of that sort of stuff that your traditional incubators and accelerators might do and then the next thing is then people go okay but then what is it and often what we're discovering is every single person within Inspiral who's a, or who's a friend of Inspiral like yourself has a wonderful different way of describing it now you could say that this means that we don't actually know what we're doing but I would say it's the opposite, that that's exactly one of the core design principles of Inspiral is that every person has a different relationship to it. And the reason for it being quite different and constantly in flux is, as Richard Bartlett put it really well, it's because we're looking for continuous participatory improvement or change. You know, like we just said, you know, the world's changing on Saturday in some form. How can Inspiral also change to meet that? But then probably what I would quickly add is all of that sounds well and good, but I'm a, I'm a realist or a logistics person or a real practical person. So I love going, well, hang on, what does that actually mean? And if I can just take a moment to describe that, you know, Inspiral in itself is a limited liability company based in New Zealand, but we have a charitable constitution and we also kind of act like a cooperative. So yes, we're a business. No, we kind of, yes, we have charity elements and we're a cooperative and we call ourselves a foundation. So already you can see from the legal structure, we're very different and don't quite fit in a box. We have about 250 to 300 contributors and then we've got about 30 members and those are our core shareholders or the people the people that hold perhaps the vision or the commitment to turn up every day to make certain that this thing continues. In Māori, there's a wonderful word called the kaitiaki, who are like the stewards, and I love to think of the members as the stewards of the network. And then finally, there'd be two more practical things that I would add, and that's all of our ventures. So you mentioned Lumio. Um, we also have Dev Academy, which is a developer's training academy, and that's actually the office that I'm sitting in here right now on Cuba Street. We have Action Station, which is kind of like New Zealand's, you know, get up mob in Australia or a vase um, for people powered change. We also have quite a lot of software developing um, communities or agencies. I've set up an event management company within it. So there's a whole lot of different startups. Well, and there's also there's 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 Chalkley, yeah. the the there's an education company, yeah. there's an accounting company, yeah. there's a news uh, a, a news agency. Yep. I mean, yep. so it's like. We've gone and looked at, you know, exactly money and decisions and food and education and news and activism and professional services and event management and facilitation and all of those things. And every single one, I guess I would feel I have the authority to say, has gone through that same process of asking, asking the question first, trying to come up with the innovative solution, but then not stopping there, then trying to apply it. Because I think it's that practice and that will activity is one of the, probably coming back to your first question that inspires me the most about Inspiral is then we just, you know, get shit done. We go, okay, right. there's been no way that no one's ever done this before, but let's try to decentralize the adult education community in New Zealand and it might work or it might not work. And, you know, Chalkal is the one that I've been most involved in in the last four years and it's been really hard trying to figure out a business model of how one reignites adult education in New Zealand, you know, and, and it's not that it's a failure right now, but I just haven't figured out a way to make it thrive. But that's also okay because it feels like the right time and the right place will happen that it will come into its own, its own self, I guess. And then if it does, and it, it's demonstrated that, oh, this is a viable market, then how do you kind of... That sounds so businessy, but how do you retain your market share when the bad guys come with uh, competitive enterprises and bigger, you know, war chests? Yeah. And I mean, I guess, to be honest, the reason for my hesitation is just in all honesty, I don't know. And I think that's one of our, our sort of second biggest questions, or many of us, the sort of idealistic social entrepreneurs around the world, not just within Inspiral, but it's becoming cliched when we talk about Uber and Airbnb as being these capitalistic, you know, taking over the sharing economy. And I'm no expert in this field, but I'm, I guess I watch it with curiosity. And my answer to it is to build organizations that are fundamentally from the very beginning, from when it is just a twinkle in your eye, they are human centric and social impact driven. 
So I'm not interested in these businesses that suddenly see it as a new market opportunity or suddenly try and design structures that don't put the human being in the center because, and perhaps I'm still idealistic, but I sense in the long run, these other businesses are going to have, I don't know, stronger viability or something like that. And I see that with an Inspiral or the sort of, you know, I've worked with nine different Inspiral projects over the last four years and every single one we put the human being in the center and design from there outwards. And I I don't know how that's going to go. So I, I probably struggle with that answer the most right now because I think the whole community and ecosystem needs to be aware of it and not fall asleep to it. I mean, I guess that's the that would be the object of the game, though, that if the human beings are invested enough in the actual process and see what it is, then they won't be um, so easily distracted by a seemingly lower cost, more corporate option. Every time that people say, oh, well, look what happened to the net. You guys started out oh so idealistic and then it flipped over into this other thing that the net's doing. And I would argue, well, yes, but, you know, those of us who are sad about it are people who who for whom the, the net the internet experience was anchored in two, three, four years of peer-to-peer activity and knowledge building and community building. You know, so that if with Inspiral companies and Inspiral type companies, if they can anchor the experience for a lot of people in, you know, what that business or organization can actually be, um, they're not going to jump, you know, the way that Friendster did to MySpace did to Facebook, because all of those were equivalent strategies. Mm. You know, they weren't actually, as you put it, they weren't human centered. They weren't impact driven from the beginning. So there was really no perceivable difference for the users to move from one thing to another. But I guess the flip side of that, or I guess where my personal struggle is, is just where the finance and the market is in this space. You know, I guess about four years ago, when I just really started entering in the sort of social, and I would have been almost five or six years ago now, entering in the sort of social enterprise space in New Zealand, um, you know, New Zealand hadn't, New Zealand government hadn't even recognized social enterprise as something at that point in time. And I felt like there was this idealistic way of, I wanted to do well financially and do good, you know, to the world at the same time. And the struggle I've had over the last five years is just how bloody hard that is, you know, and you see those companies, like you've said, where they do financially really, really well, but (laughs) The goodness just seems to get lost on the side. And then you get those of us who are trying to do both at the same time. And it can be quite hard not to become disillusioned and go, well, actually, perhaps I need to go get a corporate job because I do have to pay rent. And there's this economic system that I need to be a part of that isn't going to take all my social impact ideals as you know, currency in my bank account. And that balance has just been really hard to renegotiate on a daily basis as I'm confronted with creating my own income. And it's only now this year that I've earned the most that I've ever earned. And I've finally got an income that I'm actually proud of. But it's been five years of really hard work trying to do well and do good simultaneously. Right. And then you even wonder, I mean, even if you're well-meaning business starts doing really well, you know, what's just the impact of moving around that money, you know, or sitting on if sitting on a big base of capital, you know, it, it's the, the, the money system itself is problematic, you know, so it's, it's, it's tricky unless you're going to then move. And I'm sure you've got certain idealists in the community who say, well, let's stay away from currency altogether. We'll only use, you know, some kind of blockchain based or organic blockchain and spiral money, uh, and, and not even enter the currency system. But, you know, you know, good luck with that is the, you know, because we, well, you still have to pay rent. Exactly. And um, personally, I've decided that my individual learning goal for this year is to be is two things is I want to become more opinionated or understanding of politics. And so I'm actually going to be working with one of the Inspiral Companies Action Station on our general elections campaign, because I just really mm-hmm. want to understand, I guess, the plumbing of our political system much more and not just get caught up in party politics. And then my second sort of inquiry into this year is around finances. And I'm splitting that up into two questions as I'm really interested in getting myself more upskilled on the quantitative elements of finances, but also on the qualitative. You know, like what what is money a substitute for? Why is it that money or a, or a note only exists when there's when we're in relationship? 
you know, how do we bring more consciousness to it? A $5 bill in my pocket means nothing until I come into a relationship with someone else. So um, perhaps you can, we, we, we can do another interview in 12 months time and I can, um, I can let you know what I've learned to my questions. <laughs> yeah. And I'd read a little of that, uh, that uh, denial of death also. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of arguments about money as a, uh, a kind of a totem for, for immortality, which oh, well, of course it doesn't work. It's beautiful but. though. As soon as you start saying that you're interested in money, everyone seems to have, you know, a book or a podcast or a question and, I guess my core hope with holding it more in awareness is we just need to bring more consciousness to money. We're kind of asleep to it. And one of the things that we've done really well with Inspiral, and I think Alana woke up to this right in the early days, is how the decisions that you make about money in your organization are like a temperature check or a manifestation of how power and decisions flow through it. You know, money can be like the blood in an organization. And if it's all stuck in one corner of the body, it's not going to be healthy. You know, if only the CFO makes the decisions about the money, then the person that's doing the design work on the other side of the floor doesn't feel empowered or isn't involved in it. So I'm really curious how both we can come up with apps like CoBudget, but how we can also come up with better social processes to bring more consciousness and more awareness of what my relationship to it is. You know, why do we have this, like, no one talks about how much they earn. I'm like, well, I'm starting to get interested of having that public conversation. And no one talks about how hard it is to pay rent. Well, what would it bring to put that to the forefront? Right. I mean, there's shame on both sides of the money equation. If you don't make enough, you're ashamed for your peers that you're poor. If you start making a lot, then you're ashamed for your peers that you look, you're making too much money now. So it's a, it's, it's a socially, uh, a socially enforced silence and, uh, you know, obfuscation of, of the way money moves that if we started to see it, you know, it becomes so simple and so logical. Oh. You know, that's where, you know, Thomas Piketty or even in, in my book, you know, the throwing rocks at the Google bus when I'm looking at, oh, money, the way money works now, it was designed to spread the way it is. It was it was designed not to distribute. It was designed to be extracted by capitalists and for workers not to be able to accumulate any. You know, when you see that, then all of a sudden the way people are working with money, it, it starts to look less like their fault yep. And more like the the bias of the tool itself. Exactly. And I think that's where many of the challenges that we're looking ahead of us are design challenges. You know, if I look mm -hmm. perhaps at those three core infrastructures that many of us take a part in, that would be the organizational infrastructure, the financial infrastructure and the political infrastructure. We need to take a step back and redesign them from the bottom up. And I think that's where Inspiral has done very well with the organizational infrastructure. You know, all of our businesses have a different way of organizing. So we're not coming out to the world and saying, hey, everyone should be co-ops or, hey, everyone should be limited liability companies with a charitable constitution, because then we are doing that which we don't want. You know, then we are saying, hey, look, here's the recipe, like I mentioned at the beginning, which we don't want a whole lot of mini Inspirals around the world, because I don't think the complexity of the problems that the world's facing needs this one hammer solution. And I think now where I want to put my attention is understanding more of those financial infrastructure situations and those political infrastructure situations. And I don't know enough. I'm, I'm not an expert in that space, but I guess I just care so deeply about how these structures are just not giving a lot of people a good time in the world right now. And we've got to stop being insane as per Einstein's definition. Right. And, and ultimately the, the path to that, I mean, as, as you certainly reinforced today is to, to reacquaint ourselves with our humanity and, and that of other people, you know, which is obviously it's the point of this whole thing to, for, to, to get people thinking of themselves as on team human rather than on team money or team machine or team corporation or whatever, uh, uh, sort of artificial abstracted construct they've come up with to, to worship in their lives rather than just to, you know, engage mindfully and lovingly with the other humans yeah. around. And I think that's where it's really interesting when you start talking about, I guess, answering your question before around, you know, what if we were successful or what if we got big? Like, I always have this funny thing when people talk about IP or I have this idea and I don't want anyone to know about it. Like, 
I have so many ideas that I want people to know about because my perspective is that they're all positive ideas and you know, I'm still suffering with the consequences of a couple of other ideas and let's try and spread the new ideas. Let's open the world. And it's why we ran the open source, open society conference, because open is fundamentally better for the world. From my opinion, you know, we've got to stop getting protective. We've got to stop getting patch protective about the work that we're doing. And that's again, what we're trying to do with Inspire. I'm like, here, take it, fork it, return it back in a better form. And let's keep on learning from how the open source software community has redesigned software systems and apply that then to our organizational systems and our financial systems and our political systems, because I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers, but hopefully, and this is where I love the work that you're doing, you know, team human has the answers, but if we keep on saying that New Zealand's going to be an oasis at the bottom of the world, we've got all the answers and don't come steal them. Like that's just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right now, just there's three people already running to the airport to hop on their their G5s, whatever that can reach there, and go st- and steal your ideas. Well, the thing is that you don't need to get on the plane. You can go, anyone can go right now to Inspiral.com and just steal them online. They're there for you to take, um, to get involved. Look at the... Um, Gosh, just look at the, what was it called? That, that, what was that resource, that, that handbook? What was it? Where is that? If you just go to handbook.inspiral.com, anyone can see the total um, half created handbook that we've got. So we created that um, beginning of last year. We decided to actually to refactor Inspiral and went through a three month process of really questioning where Inspiral was going and what it needed to be. And again, taking inspiration from the technology world going, actually, what does an organizational refactor look like? Where, you know, there's bits of code that we need to chop off. There's bits that need to be cleaned up and we need to simplify what we're doing. And that three month process led us to come up with, I think it was about six agreements. So before when you spoke about the sort of principles and protocols that Inspiral sits on, We've named them agreements, and now anyone can go to handbook.inspiral.com and see our core agreements, which are around, you know, we've got a people agreement, we've got a decision-making agreement, a money agreement, um, a catalyst agreement, and a board agreement, and they were created um, with the whole community all using Lumio, and since that, then we also created a stewardship agreement, stewardship and how we care for our community. There's this interesting thing that happens in organizations where a lot of people want to remove hierarchies or want to remove the management structures, but forget that they do actually serve a purpose. And if you remove those structures, you actually need to replace them with something else. Because otherwise things like, you know, the dark economy or sort of social capital starts to become the things of how you get stuff done when there's no formal structures to help both help look after people, but also help them get stuff done. So that's kind of the, I guess, the decentralized and the centralized tango dance that Inspiral's been dancing. Right. And those things are there. I mean, they're not they're not cookie cutter templates for you to start your own platform cooperative over your own uh, financial agreements, but they do give a, enough of a hint of what the process is and what the uh, what your how to how to sort of measure your priorities in developing agreements and uh, sort of systems of your own. You know, I'm, I'm sure you do. I get tons of emails from people saying, I want to start a co-op or a platform cooperative. I want to raise money in a different way. How do I do it? Well, you're going to do it in your own way. Everyone's going to do it differently. But the Inspiral Handbook is a great set of decisions that have been made by one group that can really inform your own decision making. So I, you know, I highly encourage you to look at, at what they're doing and and to steal it and then show them what you did. Email it back and and show your version. Exactly. Um, Send it back to us and let us know where we can improve. I mean, in no way. And I love this feeling like I really don't feel like an expert. You know, I'm a I'm a generalized specialist. I, I just try and do everything all the time and I'm definitely not an expert. But I would say that I'm a practitioner. You know, I can talk to you about the experience of working with 250 people who care about something deeply or trying to get things done. But the beauty of Inspiral is the collective stories of those 250 people. 
So potentially to your listeners, there might be the people that are interested in the details of the handbook. They're interested in Mm -hmm. the agreements. But there might be a group of listeners out there who are more interested in the stories. And in that case, I'd really recommend them to go to blog.inspiral.com, which is our medium channel. And that's our Inspiral Tales. And that's where we've opened it up to all of our contributors to tell the stories of Inspiral. Not just the shiny, shiny ones either, because I can probably, we could spend another hour talking about the amount of times we've stuffed things up, you know, the amount of times we've got things wrong. And I think one of the big jobs of Inspiral also this year is to not get too shiny. And I'm really interested in helping to be held account to that, because as soon as we become too shiny and golden, we then also become that which we're trying to question or challenge. So it's kind of Mm -hmm. like, how does one stay humble in the work while also gaining this international success? And I think if you can also build that into your design systems, then perhaps that's another answer to your earlier question that I was struggling with. Absolutely. Well, I know you've got another, uh, you've got another interview to do in six minutes. Um, so I want to let you go. I want to thank you so much, Sylvia Zur, for, uh, for coming on Team Human and, and most of all for your, your work with Inspiral, which, uh, which is inspiring um, to me and to, to many others, uh, as well as being Spiral uh, in its own wonderful way. Oh, thank, thank you very much. This was actually really, really fun. <laughs> Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. Thanks to Emily Diamond for her generous contribution to the virtual coin slot at teamhuman.fm. The show is produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. I'd also like to thank our friends at the Queens College School of Music, Justin Tricario, who's donated time and equipment to the podcast. Thanks, as always, to our supporters at Zago, Meetup, and The Ready. And thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for letting us use their music on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.